we have a lot to cover in this panel, uh, not enough time to cover it, and uh, so I'd like to begin uh, now. Uh, my name is uh, Walter Reich. Um, my bio and the bios of everybody on the panel uh, are located in the handouts uh, that I assume you have. Um, this panel is about terrorism's causes. It's titled Terrorism's Causes, Grievances, Goals, or Gang Membership. Um, it obviously relates to the overall title of the of the conference shaping uh, the Obama administration's counterterrorism strategy. The, the idea is that if if there's a problem, uh, it would be good, it would be helpful to have to know what its causes are. Problem is that uh, causes are often very complex. In medicine, I happen to be a physician, so I, my mind goes there. Uh, there are illnesses that. Uh, have multiple causes. In fact, there are often multiple illnesses. Schizophrenia, for example, um, is probably many, many illnesses, each of which ha may have different genetic causes as well as environmental causes, and that goes for arthritis and diabetes and many other illnesses. So um, the causes are very important, very complex, um, and necessary to study, and that's what this panel will do. Uh, we have four speakers. Uh, Mia Bloom is Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the University of Georgia. James Forrest is Director of Terrorism Studies and Associate Professor of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Robert Pape is Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Max Abrams is a pre-doctoral fellow at Stanford. Uh, I won't say anything more except to ask Mia Bloom uh, to come to the podium. I'm going to have to lower the microphone. Um, I want to first thank Chris Preble and uh, Brandy Dunn and Victoria for all of their hard work in putting together this panel and this whole conference. So um, it's interesting from the previous panel, you may be aware of the fact that this is part two of a discussion that started in August, a very intimate discussion in which we were looking at root causes. And for the most part, there is a growing awareness in the terrorism literature that it truly has suffered from a dearth of primary source field research. The shortcoming has been overwhelmingly due to the fact that researchers tend to be reluctant, haven't been willing or haven't been able to enter into the field to conduct actual interviews in order to glean you know, if we're talking about motivations or root causes or underlying preconditions. As a result, most of the information that we get tends to come from secondary sources, from newspaper reports, and from attribution. And basically, this defect has resulted in what I consider to be somewhat narrow prescriptive frameworks that limit our understanding of terrorism, as well as the root causes. And so what we basically are in need of is research that engages the phenomenon with the problem as it really exists and not as, as we would caricature it. Um, I'm going to quote Mark Sageman, who's right here. And uh, Mark has uh, on more than one occasion said the plural of anecdote is not data. But I particularly like 
I particularly like he, he made mention of the fact that the lack of any solid ethnographic work is compounded by the self-promotion of an army of self-appointed experts who rely exclusively on Internet propaganda from terrorists, and he likens this to understanding anything about Nazis by reading Nazi propaganda. And this has, of course, been compounded. You may or may not know, but Andrew Silk has done some research on, uh, for a book called Research on Terrorism. Since 9-11, there has been a new book on terrorism published every six minutes. That makes everyone in the room, self-appointed experts or not, absolutely incapable of reading everything that has been published on terrorism. And let me uh, recommend that you don't even try, since there is a lot of chaff before you get to the wheat. So basically, the discussions of root causes inevitably lead to certain identifiers of what are the preconditions or the environments. What you then have is a laundry list or a virtual laundry list of what we call root causes, although um, in Tori Bjorgo's seminal book on the, P, on, on the subject in 2005, Root Causes of Terrorism, what he said is was, it's not uh, root causes per se, but a number of preconditions for terrorism, and then there's a laundry list, lack of democracy, civil rights, and the rule of law, failed or weak states, rapid modernization, illegitimate and corrupt governments, extremist ideologies, be they secular or religious, powerful external actors propping up corrupt regimes or foreign occupation, um, historical antecedents of violence, inequalities of power, social injustice, the presence of charismatic organizers and leaders, and some other various triggering events. So as much as Tori Bjorgo and the other authors in the edited volume attempted to explode the myth that root causes exist, in fact, we still talk about root causes. And extremely recently, Joseph Farah presented his list of root causes, uh, foreign domination and control of Muslim lands and resources, hatred of the Western way of life, alienation, poverty and illiteracy, the decadence of the West, and least or last but not least, the West's support for Israel. So although we now have a debate as to whether or not root causes should exist, because the fact is, and I had a handout where unfortunately the um, graphics didn't come out very well, the idea of a root cause is a structural factor or an environmental factor. So say, for instance, um, with a particular condition, it affects everybody in that society. And yet, the fact of the matter is, very few people actually become terrorists. In any given society, the number of people who are mobilized into the movement, let alone choose from within that mobilization to take up arms and start killing people, is really just a small fraction. And so as a result, we are missing the intervening variables to understand why in an instance where you have, let's say, occupation and poverty and illiteracy and corrupt regimes that applies to everybody in the, in the particular region, why only a few people are coming forward and becoming terrorists. But it's also important to highlight one thing. By saying that it's structural, we're actually taking away any kind of agency or decision process from that person who decided to take up arms. Because ultimately, the devil made me do it, or you know, I couldn't help myself, is not particularly persuasive. And so Although I may sound you know, somewhat of two minds with my presentation today, what I wanted to say is that on the one hand, we really need to understand better when we say root causes, what do we mean by cause, but also what do we mean by root? And if we're talking about conditions that exacerbate an environment in which you're going to have increased mobilization and support for violence, 
then we are maybe talking about some of what we've tended to associate as root causes. Now, one of the root causes that I find particularly interesting is this notion of poverty. And so for the most part, the scholarly community has come out, including the distinguished gentleman to my left, is to say that there is no relationship between poverty and terrorism. And of course, most of the research that has been done, uh, led in part by um, Alan Kruger at Princeton and Jitka Malakova, Claude Baraby and others, have basically shown that many of the terrorists, whether they are the 19 hijackers or a number of other terrorists in PIJ, Hamas, and Hezbollah, tend to be better educated and better off financially than the majority of the people you know, in their society. And so they've come to the conclusion, and of course in um, uh, Dr. LeCure's review of the Kruger book, gave the final death knell to the fact that we should connect poverty and terrorism. Of course, in the policy world, this is still very much a debate. Um, as recently as two days ago, Dana, or three days ago, Dana Perino said that there's still some sort of connection between poverty and terrorism. Uh, but the fact remains that although we have been very quick at dismissing any kind of linkage, because what we've done is we've focused on the perpetrators of violence, the problem is we don't realize to what degree there's been a selection effect. All of the data that has been collected on the connection between violence and terrorism and poverty and education has looked at the individual terrorists who have perpetrated acts and then gone backwards to look at their backgrounds. But it doesn't take into account the fact that the societies from which they've come have been overwhelmingly poor and for the most part have had less opportunities for education. Um, I was fortunate to have done some field research, and uh, a lot of the field research included uh, survey data. In the survey data that I collected, as well as some other uh, data that we've collected from other regions, including, shockingly enough, Iran, there is, in fact, a connection between support for violence and poverty and a lack of education. And so what I would say is that, although I understand the contributions that the literature have made have been very important, and it's very important to understand that throwing money at the problem is not going to be a panacea, we should also understand the link between supportive communities from which the terrorists come. Why do I want to focus on the supportive communities? In part, it's because by focusing on one thing, I think we are very often confusing the idea of correlation with causation. We may see correlates between either root causes or between you know, a lack of something or the presence of something, but we need to have a better understanding of contexts. So basically, while wealthier and better educated members of a population may participate in terrorism, um, our current research finds that support for ter terrorism shows exactly the opposite trend. And so here, too, we also need to be cautious. Rather than focus on the individual terrorists, it's important to examine the larger context from which they emerge. To this end, the support community from which the terrorist operative draws his support, sustenance, from which the movement draws additional recruits, really needs to be better understood in terms of assessing their preferences for violence. I'm skipping ahead because I don't have much time. Um, the other thing that I found is a lot of the literature tends to focus on cases that corroborate the findings and really don't deal with what we might call counterfactual examples. So in the cases of the poverty and terrorism debate, all of the examples from which Baraby and um, Jitka Malakova, Alan Kruger, as well as Diego Gambetta, they've all drawn on the cases 
um, that substantiate their findings and don't look at the LTTE, the Liberation Tigers in Sri Lanka. They don't look at the provisional IRA. They don't look at the uh, PKK in Turkey or, for the most part, ETA in Spain, all of which you would see that both operatives and the support community tend to be poorer. Interestingly enough, some of the findings have argued that there's no relationship between democracy and terrorism, which again makes us question one of the other underlying, alleged underlying root causes. Um, in Abadi's findings, he found no relationship between poverty and terrorism, that terrorism is more likely in poorer countries. Interestingly enough, this finding invalidates the root cause of a lack of democracy and civil rights because according to this school of thought, the absence of alternative mechanisms to voice dissent creates pressures for violence. So basically, what I'm saying is that we don't really know what causes terrorism and in fact, we may not ever know that there is one particular cause. It's difficult to identify the cause, although we can look at the broad socio-political and socio-economic preconditions for terrorism. But it remains the case, and I really want to emphasize this, that very, very few people will actually engage in terrorism, let alone specifically in terrorist violence. Instead, what we need to understand is context and the process. So the questions that are asked now that I think ring a lot more true are not why did you become a terrorist, which you're probably more than likely going to get a whole litany of propaganda from the organization and a pat answer. Instead of asking why did you become a terrorist, we need to ask the questions how did you become a terrorist? And what is the process for initially getting involved, for staying involved, for deepening that involvement, and ultimately maybe walking away? We've been very fortunate to have access to a number of ex former terrorists who have, in fact, and I use the quotes, walked away. And what is very interesting about the findings, and uh, John Horgan, who is the director of the Terrorism Center at Penn State, has uh, got a new book in which both looks at the process of disengagement as well as the efficacy of many of the dis very expensive disengagement programs around the world. His own book is based on interviews with about 52 former terrorists from organizations as diverse as the uh, Al-Qaeda and Jamaat Islamiyah to the provisional IRA. What's very interesting through the course of all of these interviews, his main finding is that um, although people have left the movement, and what I mean by left the movement is it's a form of disengagement in which they've stopped killing people, they, they don't really leave the movement in terms of where their hearts are. So I think that there's been this massive misunderstanding about demobilization, which is you know, you're no longer killing, and de-radicalization. Many of the people who are no longer killing still have very radical views. And so, again, it really puts into question what our expectations are in terms of under, understanding the root causes and then being able to provide opportunities for leaving, demobilizing, but I don't know if we're ever going to be able to completely de-radicalize. I've gotten my notes, so I'm going to hurry up. Um, furthermore, it's important to understand from the findings that what motivated the individual to first join might look like some of those root causes, but what sustains their membership in the movement and what makes them engage in more and more violence, sometimes over time, are often not the same things. These things change. It also is important to understand both 
the lures of participating in terrorism. So when we talk about root causes, for the most part, those are what Horgan calls the push factors. In other words, these exist in the society, and they create this notion that you're being pushed into violence because either you, you know, you're fighting the corrupt regime or you're fighting up against a number of the laundry list of potential root causes. But it doesn't really take into account the lure of participating, the benefits that people feel that they get when they join a terrorist organization. And what is particularly interesting is when across these, you know, 50-odd cases of former terrorists, when we try to find what is the one thing in common, is there one thing in common that can explain an individual leaving the IRA as well as an individual leaving al-Qaeda or an individual leaving Jamaat Islamiya or Hezbollah or Hamas or, or the PLO, the main theme that runs through Horgan's finding is disillusion, disillusionment with the movement. What do I mean by disillusionment? The original thing that drew them to the movement, the expectations of the benefits that they would have being part of that movement, those expectations were not met. And it's in fact this discrepancy between what you expected to gain and what you actually gained, what you thought your life would be like and what your life actually was like that led all of these 50-plus people, to walk away. And so what I think here, the message that we should take from it, is that we need to understand better the process, and we also need to be able to implement better, maybe counter-propaganda that makes terrorism known and makes this discrepancy known. We have to be better at advertising. And I'm going to stop with just a small, uh, what I consider to be a funny anecdote from one of the interviews. And it's important to understand why I privilege or I try to emphasize the need to talk to terrorists, which I know isn't always a popular thing to say, you know, in D.C. Um, there was a well-known right-wing neo-Nazi terrorist in, uh, let's say, a northern European country who took a bomb and he blew up a mosque. So, of course, right away, the newspaper headlines, anti-Islamic sentiment in Europe, anti-immigration sentiment, increase of the radical right. In the interview, just curious, neo-Nazi, why would you blow up the mosque? Well, this is what happened. He says, I had the bomb in my rucksack, and I got on the trolley. And I got on the trolley accidentally going in the wrong direction. But I knew that the bomb was on a timer. And I kept waiting for the trolley to come and make full circle so that I could get up at the, at the synagogue. I saw the mosque, and I thought, well, I don't think he thought, eh, but I'm going to say, eh, close enough. And so blows up the mosque. Which is why it's very important that we don't look at the end result and we start creating a backstory to explain what happened. It's really important that we have more rigorous opportunities to check the data and not just look at a series of numbers or a series of lists, which are in themselves useful, but sometimes can hide the real truth. I've run out of time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mia. Uh, Mia just... Um has demonstrated that sometimes anecdotes are data. Um, the next speaker is James Forrest. Please. Morning, folks. <clears throat> um, 
I'm going to address the topic of terrorist activity from sort of a broad brush today. It's going to talk a little bit about both kinetic and non-kinetic forms of uh, support for terrorist activity. Um, similar to uh, Mia's paper, I'm going to talk a little bit about context and process. But I'm really going to hammer down on this issue of radicalization processes, interpretations, and communication. My argument is in the paper is that terrorism is a product of choice similar to what Mia just said. But these choices are influenced by perceptions and beliefs, and radicalization is an interpretive proce process uh, that begins with communication. It's framed by culturally informed beliefs. So therefore, engaging perceptions on the street level and online should be a prominent component of any counterterrorism strategy. So there's my conclusion. How did I arrive at this blinding flash of the obvious? Well... I'm going to try and walk you through a uh, very quick crash course of James Forrest studying the root causes of terrorism. I began by looking at this wealth of the so-called root causes of terrorism and drawing on typologies developed by scholars such as Martha Crenshaw, Asaf Mogadam, and such. And I drew the diagram on page two of the handout that uh, many of you hopefully picked up. Uh, it's the one with all these circles and little uh, inverted uh, uh, diamond in the middle of it with an I and O and all these little codes. This is one attempt to kind of encapsulate uh, this myriad wealth of research on root causes of terrorism, um, really trying to address the six key categories in the literature that I saw. First, we have individual characteristics. These are the personal motivations for action, like revenge, psychological characteristics, attributes. Um, one thing that really struck me from this literature is that there is no one single common profile of the terrorist. The second category are these organizational characteristics. These you know, address the sort of lure of uh, joining a terrorist group, engaging in terrorist activity. These are the uh, history of the group, the membership, the leadership of the group, uh, perceptions of competence, um, strategies to, uh, to mitigate the grievances articulated in their ideology. Um, these two, individual and organization, are placed in the center of this diagram, surrounded by these uh, various environmental conditions. And I, I picked out four basic categories from the environmental conditions um, literature. First are these precipitant conditions. Um, these are the socioeconomic, political, and other issues which generate or at least give legitimacy to grievances um, articulated in a terrorist organization's ideology. Examples like uh, poverty, corruption, dictatorship, structural disadvantages uh, for a segment of the population and so forth. The second category are the environmental triggers, and these could be uh, specific events, specific uh, policies or actions that enhance the perceived need for action among a particular population. could be a coup, an invasion of another country, uh, a terrorist attack by a peer competitor, uh, even the publication of offensive uh, cartoons in Danish newspapers. Um, this category also includes regional events. Uh, for example, we see the impact on communities in Egypt and Lebanon and Jordan uh, when Israel invades the, the Gaza Strip. Uh, third category, these opportunities to act. And these here are the facilitators of terrorist activity, like uh, access to weapons, freedom of movement across borders, funding, safe haven, state sponsorship, and so forth. And the final category of environmental enablers tries to capture the global aspect of this, you know, the, the uh, many ways in which globally interdependent economies, transportation networks, interstate conflicts, diaspora communities, transnational criminal networks, uh, and the Internet and so forth can influence both uh, the grievances and the opportunities that individuals and terrorist organizations capitalize on. But this research kind of left me with a bunch of questions, unanswered questions. Uh, for example, why do the same conditions exist in many places and yet terrorism exists in only a few of them? Um, also, if, if an individual is motivated by particular perceptions of injustice, uh, how are those perceptions formed or influenced? How do they lead to the kind of humiliation 
uh, anger and despair that animates terrorists? How do personal beliefs about human security relate to the resonance of a terrorist organization's ideology? Um, and finally, these types of typologies are often static in time. Um, they, they offer snapshots, but really don't allow us to account for sequences of events, um, changes in conditions of time, uh, other dynamic features of real life. So I ventured into this other area of research um, that's described in this diagram that I drew for page three of the handout. Um, this is a different kind of frame of analysis that draws from the literature on radicalization processes, pathways, um, staircases, elevators, you know, all the metaphors you've probably heard about are very familiar with by now. This second frame tries to account for the tools and mechanisms of radicalization like myths, symbols, peers, history, educational religious leaders, um, social networks, and so forth. Uh, it also illustrates how environmental conditions and individual belief systems interact with each other and addresses issues of how we know what we know, why we believe what we believe. Uh, for example, the role of textbooks in Saudi Arabia that preach hatred and tolerance uh, for really anyone who does not subscribe to the Wahhabi uh, sect of Islam. Overall, this approach emphasizes how radicalization is an interpretive process that begins with some forms of communication, whether it's family, school, religion, and so forth. And terrorism is a product of individual and organizational choices then influenced by complex relationships that are dynamic, fluid, and changing over time. So using these two frames of analysis together, sort of a bifocal lens, if you will, a pair of glasses, uh, the research exercise led me to formulate seven propositions about the risks of terrorism that highlight the centrality of ideas, perceptions, and beliefs, and particularly how these can be influenced. So first, the first proposition is basically this. Whatever you do that's terrorist-related, the chances are high that you chose to do it. Very simple. The second proposition is that an individual's choice to engage in or disengage from terrorist activity occurs at the intersection of ideas, perceptions, and opportunities, and that these can change over time. So from a counterterrorism standpoint, the importance of this line of reasoning is that perceptions and influences can be in, uh, sorry, perceptions and beliefs can be influenced. The third proposition offers some examples of the kind of interpretive influencers or credible voices that must play a role in a government's strategic communications effort. The recent trend of these popular moderate Muslim preachers on Saudi satellite TV is kind of an especially promising uh, development in this regard. The fourth proposition emphasizes the importance of understanding terrorist ideologies, especially where and why a particular organization's ideology resonates. The fifth proposition is that the perceptions of an organization's leadership especially its competence and personal agendas, are vital to the organization and can be undermined. The sixth highlights why influencing street-level perceptions of environmental conditions should be an important aspect of any strategic communications effort. And seventh, just to kind of close the interactive loop here, is a reminder that our actions impact our environment. Uh, for example, as I discussed in the previous panel, how a government or its citizenry citizens react to acts of terrorism impacts the likelihood of future terrorist activity. The paper then goes on and weaves through a bunch of different research studies that relates to these propositions and concludes with some policy implications for a new presidential administration with particular focus on what I call influence warfare. To begin with, I feel that a successful counterterrorism strategy should focus on at least three target sets. The first target set is obviously the, the organizations themselves. We should attack organizations and their members, degrade their functional capabilities, encourage leaving our alternatives, support social political entities that draw support away from them. 
Second, we need to work with other countries to address grievances that are used by those organizations to justify violence. And from this uh, perspective, I find that USAID experts, along with experts from departments of agriculture, commerce, and education are seen as just as important in helping combating terrorism as experts from the Department of Defense and State. We also need to continue working collaboratively to confront enabling opportunities like these safe havens and state sponsorships and border controls and financial networks and such. The third target set is this perceptions and interpretations target set, um, especially perceptions of conditions, opportunities, and organizations. We've done a lot in these first two target sets, especially after 9-11, but this third area is where I see the most need for attention and for action. First of all, a central goal of any terrorist organization is gaining and maintaining legitimacy with their target audience. If they fail to convince their target audience to support their cause, they're doomed. But they face a considerable challenge of influencing individuals to support terrorist activity. Our challenge as counterterrorism experts, policies, and practitioners should be to exacerbate the challenges that terrorist organizations face. Um, To do this effectively requires knowledge of context. We need to understand the reasons why a terrorist organization's ideology resonates among among a particular population. Effective influence requires that we understand how people make meaning and how we can credibly play a role in that process. Ideologies do not have to be based on fact to be believed. They need to be merely communicated effectively and persuasively within a favorable cultural, socioeconomic, and political environment, which enables that ideological resonance. It is the way in which people react to and perceive their environment that enables acts of violence. And we need to take a proactive role in influencing those perceptions and reactions. Almost out of time? Okay. Final. If terrorism does indeed revolve around individual choices, and these choices can be influenced, we must explore all avenues by which we can gain influence among the type of populations that our terrorist enemies are currently today trying to influence themselves. This means we need to become as effective in communicating as we are in military operations. We need to listen better, because effective communication requires good listening. We also need to be perceived as good listeners. We need to be perceived as a superpower that cares about being more responsible as a world superpower. We need to understand context, and we must have much more meaningful engagement on the Internet, where our enemies are already quite active in trying to influence a global audience. This is an area of particular interest to me and my colleagues at the Combating Terrorism Center. So to conclude, the study highlights the centrality of perceptions, argues that combating terrorism requires not only contextual knowledge and intelligence, but also an ability to influence beliefs. Look forward to expanding these policy implications from what I learned from all of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Robert Pape. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I'd like to thank Chris and all the folks at Cato for inviting me to this important conference, and I'm simply delighted to be part of this very distinguished panel. Today I'm going to talk about suicide terrorism, which in many ways is the lung cancer of terrorism. It's the most deadly form of the phenomenon, and as I'm going to argue today, also is associated with a specific set of risk factors that's quite important to take into account. Over the past three year, or th- three decades, excuse me, suicide terrorism has been rising around the world, but there's great confusion about why. Since many of the attacks, including 9-11, have been perpetrated by Muslim suicide terrorists, many have presumed that Islamic fundamentalism must be the obvious central cause. However, 
This presumed connection between suicide terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism is misleading and is encouraging domestic and foreign policies likely to worsen our situation. I hope many of you have received the handout. Uh, The folks at Cato were kind enough to make copies of um, a bunch of data. (laughs) And uh, what I do is I collect a lot of data on suicide terrorism. And what I'm going to do for the rest of the talk is talk about a lot of the slides uh, in the handout. And so I I, I hope it's been passed out. But I understand those of you who don't have, they'll be able to get it after uh, in the next session, in the intermission. A few years ago... I published the first complete database of all suicide terrorist attacks around the world since 1980. I did this with the generous support of the Department of Defense, the Carnegie Corporation in New York, Argonne National Laboratories, and the University of Chicago, and with the help of a research team of a dozen folks who were fluent in all the key native languages associated with the phenomenon, Arabic, Hebrew, Tamil, Russian, Urdu. We also had so much funding that we were able to uh, essentially go to Damascus, Cairo, Beirut, uh, I've just gone to Doha myself, um, to collect uh, primary source information and be glad to talk more about that in the Q&A if you'd like. The core database is, uh, covers 1980 to 2003. I'm going to speak about that first. Then I'm going to discuss our update for 2004 through the summer of 2008. And I'm going to pay specific attention to Afghanistan because that's the area that's getting attention in Washington at the moment. So what does the data in the core database show? First, it shows that Islamic fundamentalism and suicide terrorism are not as closely associated as many people think. Overall, in the first 24 years of the modern phenomenon, 1980 to 2003, there were 315 completed suicide terrorist attacks around the world. The world leader is a group that many of you probably haven't heard too much about. They're, because they're not attacking us or our allies, they're the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka a Marxist group, a secular group, a Hindu group. The Tamil Tigers have done more suicide attacks than Hamas or Islamic Jihad, and they're still ahead of Hamas to this day. Further, in this period, at least 30% of all Muslim suicide attacks were by purely secular groups such as the PKK in Turkey, which is another Marxist, read, anti-religious suicide terrorist group. Overall, at least 50% of all suicide attacks around the world in this period were not associated with Islamic fundamentalism. Instead of religion, what nearly 95% of all suicide terrorist attacks around the world have in common is a specific secular and strategic goal to compel a democratic state to withdraw combat forces. I don't mean advisors with sidearms. I mean tanks, fighter aircraft, and armor units from threatening territory the terrorists consider to be their homeland or prize greatly. If you look at the next chart, the one with the nine uh, disputes, you can see that from Lebanon to Sri Lanka to the West Bank to Iraq, what all of the nine disputes that account for 95% of all suicide terrorism around the world from 1980 to 2003 have in common is that the terrorists are fighting for self-determination for territory that the terrorists prize. That is the central goal. So, what does uh, 
suicide terrorism look like in the last five years, basically since Iraq? Well, if you go to the next slide, you'll see that we've recently completed our uh, update for suicide terrorism around the world through June of 2008. And about a month or so we'll have completed uh, through the rest of the year uh, uh, as well. Uh, it probably comes as no surprise to you to see the large number of attacks uh, in Iraq. Um, some of you may be surprised to see just how many attacks have already occurred uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, you're probably not too surprised to know that uh, campaigns by al-Qaeda, the Tamil Tigers, the Chechens, and the Kashmiri rebels are continuing. However, the major finding from this update, the core finding from this update is, yes, it's true. Suicide terrorism, the pattern has changed in the last five years. From 1980 to 2003, probably fewer than 10 percent, actually probably about 7.5 percent of all those suicide attacks in that 24-year period could be considered anti-American suicide terrorist attacks. Now, in the last five years, fully 89% of all the suicide terrorism that's occurring around the world is inspired by anti-Americanism, and it's directly linked to the presence that is the new presence, the onset of American combat forces on territory that the terrorists prize. This is an extremely dangerous pattern, and it's something that is extremely important for the new administration to work to change. We simply don't want to live in this world much longer. The other point to take away from the uh, update is that this is strong confirmation for the strategic logic of suicide terrorism that I just laid out for you. Altogether, from 1980 to 2008, the summer of 2008, there are some 1,670 suicide terrorist attacks. Uh, these are double-confirmed suicide terrorist attacks, um, all with primary sources that you'll be able to document. And in fact, in September, we're going to have a searchable database on the web where you'll be able to actually review all, not just the summary statistics, but actually we're inputting all the documentation for all the attacks as well. Uh, those of you who know my work, I like to publish this stuff, and it's just taken a while to get that voluminous amount of stuff on the web, but it is coming in the near future. But anyway, the bottom line is that for this pattern to be wrong that I'm identifying, we would have had to have missed not five suicide attacks around the world in this period, not even 50. There would have to be hundreds of suicide attacks occurring somewhere around the world, not on the countries in this chart. That is not just a few more in Iraq somewhere else than on this chart. This is simply unlikely. Well, let me just say a couple words about what's happening in Iraq and then get to Afghanistan. Uh, Iraq is a prime example of the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. Before our invasion in March 2003, Iraq never experienced a suicide terrorist attack in its history. And since our invasion, suicide terrorism has been raging. If you look at the chart, many of you are going to be surprised to see that in the first six months of 2008, as all the violence in Iraq has been going down, down by some 80-some, 85 percent, Suicide terrorism is continuing to rage. We have 95 double-confirmed attacks in the first six months of 2008, 110 if we just did single uh, confirmation attacks. 
Why is this occurring? It's occurring because in Iraq, we've actually had two conflicts, a three-sided civil war of Sunnis killing Shia and Kurds, Shia killing the other, and a one-sided, one-dimensional suicide terrorist campaign. The suicide terrorism in Iraq is all Sunni. To this day, we don't have a single Shia suicide terrorist in Iraq. Just think about that for a moment. And that Sunni suicide terrorism is inspired to attack Western forces and the allies of those forces, which the Sunnis believe, the Sunni terrorists believe, are essentially uh, many of the the Iraqi government groups uh, and other local groups working with the United States. So Afghanistan. Let me move to Afghanistan because in many ways this is the most important case at the moment. Afghanistan is also a prime example of the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. Before our invasion in 2001, Afghanistan never experienced a suicide terrorist attack in its history with the lone exception of the suicide assassination of Massoud, the leader of the Northern Alliance, on September 9th 2001, which was directly in anticipation of the American invasion. There was, as you can tell from the chart, essentially a honeymoon of a few years. And then in 2005, but especially 2006, oh my gosh, something's happened. The spike up of suicide terrorism in Afghanistan. Why? Well, I think we can explain that. Uh, Let's look at the targets and who's doing the suicide attacks. The next slide shows you the targets. As you can see, the targets of the suicide terrorism have been heavily concentrated against security targets, and especially American and Western ground forces. These are comprising 80-plus percent of all the suicide terrorism that's occurring in Afghanistan. And, in fact, the numbers in 2008, just in case you're wondering, uh, those will go up. That's just for the first six months. Uh, They would essentially more than double once we include the next six months. If we go to the next slide, we can see who the attackers are. We can confidently identify 37 of the suicide attackers in Afghanistan. Of these, 35 or 95 percent are Afghan nationals. Yes, many of those Afghan nationals are living in refugee camps across the border, but the fact is they're Afghan nationals. This is the pattern of local opposition to Western military presence, not a global jihad just kind of flowing around the world. But still, why the spike up in 2005? Well, if we go to the next slide, you can see that part of the answer has to do with the escalation of the level of Western ground forces. For the first few years of the occupation, we had less than 15,000 Western ground forces. Then, starting around 2004, you'll notice the steady escalation of ground forces. And, of course, many of you know we're about to add another 20,000, but that's just been going on steadily since 2004. But what's the real reason underneath this? If you go to the final slide, you'll see that the most important reason for the spike in suicide terrorism in Afghanistan is a shift in Western military deployment patterns in Afghanistan. For the first two years, Western ground forces were not only small in number, but were mainly limited to the occupation of Kabul, because it was not until October 2003 that the UN granted permission for Western forces to occupy areas outside of Kabul. 
Then, after that uh, UN mandate, NATO developed a plan, and this is the actual expansion plan you see from NATO on the slide, the actual plan. Um, They developed a plan to occupy the rest of the country. Not surprisingly, they started with the north and the western regions because those are inhabited by populations sympathetic to the northern alliance, our allies. That's where you'd go first. And then starting in 2005, and especially in 06, they go to the south and they go to the east. Those are the areas populated by the Pashtuns sympathetic to the Taliban. That is, the more that we have sat direct on the Pashtun homeland, the more the Pashtuns have supported the Taliban, and the more this has led to an escalation of anti-Western and especially anti-American suicide terrorism against our presence. This obviously bodes poorly for trying to stabilize Afghanistan by adding another 20,000 or even another 30,000 ground forces. I think unless we're seriously talking about adding a very large number of ground forces, most experts I talk to think probably we need somewhere between 200,000 just in the Kandahar region alone. Um, If we're really going to talk about stabilizing that region to get any real benefit, unless we're talking about a dramatic radically large, not larger number of ground forces, I think we should recognize that just throwing in another 10 or 20,000 ground forces is probably the worst of both worlds. It's probably not enough to actually stabilize the situation, but it is enough to continue to foment anti-American suicide terrorism. Well, Overall, if we are to defeat the threat of anti-American suicide terrorism, it is important for the next administration to shift away from the strategy, a strategy that relies on heavy ground forces to try to meet this threat. My suggestion, as many in the audience know, has been offshore balancing, which essentially relies on a combination of political, economic, and over-the-horizon military tools to secure America's interests in the Persian Gulf and other regions of the world and to prevent the rise of a new generation of suicide terrorists trying to kill us. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Pape. Thank you. Terrorism is often described as a disease. Just as doctors can't expect to cure disease until they understand its cause, policymakers can't expect to reduce terrorism until we understand why people use it. So the question of what motivates people to become terrorists isn't some academic exercise. It's a question of, of great importance to national security. The conventional wisdom is that people become terrorists for political reasons, namely to achieve their terrorist group's political platform. It's assumed, for example, that people join Hamas to achieve a Palestinian state or that people join al-Qaeda to get the United States out of the Persian Gulf. The most common counterterrorism strategies therefore try to reduce terrorism by reducing its political value. Governments do this in three ways. Governments withhold political concessions in the hopes of convincing terrorists that violence won't pay. Governments sometimes try to appease terrorists in the hopes of getting them to renounce the violence. Or governments promote nonviolent political alternatives like democratic elections. But none of these solutions has a good track record. 
In this talk, I'll argue that political solutions have such a bad track record for a very simple reason. Most people do not participate in terrorist groups for the, stated, for, for the political return to achieve their stated political goals. If people use terrorism for political reasons, then terrorist groups simply would not behave the ways that they do. Terrorist groups engage in six politically counterproductive behaviors. Each of these behaviors represents a major puzzle for the conventional wisdom that people use terrorism to achieve its stated political goals. The first puzzling behavior is the use of terrorism itself, which is probably the worst tactic in the world to convince governments to make political concessions. In 2006, I did a study that analyzed the political plights of the 28 most important terrorist groups, according to the State Department. Most of these groups had been around for decades, but not a single one of them had accomplished its political platform by targeting civilians. Two years later, the RAND Corporation examined every single terrorist group since 1968. RAND found that only 2% of these groups had achieved their political platform, and more importantly, that probably none, absolutely none of the terrorist groups on record achieved their political platform by targeting civilians. Now, guerrilla attacks on military targets, like in Iraq, are sometimes politically effective. But we know that when these same groups use terrorism by targeting civilians, they statistically and substantially reduce the likelihood of gaining political concessions. This distinction between guerrilla warfare and terrorism is important. Terrorism, as you know, is against civilian, not military targets. We know also statistically that terrorism tends to empower hardliners who are ideologically opposed to accommodating the terrorists. The evidence for these electoral shifts isn't just anecdotal. We know that from terrorist attacks, electorates turn to candidates who are the most averse to making political concessions. The second puzzling behavior is that terrorist groups don't usually exhaust more effective political alternatives. It's commonly said that terrorism is a last resort, but I've seen a lot of research showing that groups use terrorism over politically superior strategies. For example, most groups use terrorism after engaging in guerrilla campaigns, even though, again, the use of terrorism reduces the odds of gaining political concessions. Nonviolent strategies are also probably more politically effective than terrorism. Large statistical studies suggest that Symbolic protests, labor strikes, economic boycotts have had a far better record at inducing government compliance than terrorism. But perhaps the best evidence is that very few terrorist groups have elected to become normal, nonviolent political parties. This shouldn't come as a huge surprise since we know that most terrorist groups tend to operate in democracies, even if there's some debate as to whether or not the number of incidents is, is higher in democracies. The third puzzling behavior is that the vast majority of terrorist attacks are anonymous. Since 9-11, three to four terrorist attacks have gone unclaimed. Countries can't possibly make political concessions when they don't know which group committed the attack. Furthermore, even when terrorist groups do claim credit, 
they rarely issue specific policy demands. A typical contemporary example is the suicide terrorist who blew up the wedding in Amman, Jordan, in November 2005. We still have no idea what the political purpose was, whether it was to punish the Hashemite monarchy or the Jews or international diplomats. We just don't even know what they were hoping to achieve politically. The fourth puzzling behavior is that terrorist groups often attack other terrorist groups that share either their exact same political platform or something very close. If, if terrorist groups were politically motivated, we would expect these groups to, to team up with each other instead of directing their violence against each other. The fifth puzzle is that terrorist groups are notorious for reflexively rejecting compromise. This aversion to compromise doesn't make any political sense. Perhaps the best example today is the Palestinians. As most of you know, all of Gaza and the vast majority of the West Bank have been on the bargaining table for years, arguably decades. Yet Palestinian, Palestinian terrorists have consistently rebuffed these Israeli offers, and now they have a lot less to show for it. The sixth puzzle is that many terrorist groups, such as al-Qaeda, abruptly changed their political rationale. If terrorist groups were wedded to achieving their political platform, then why does it change? And why does it often change so frequently and so, and, and so abruptly? In some, the actual behavior of terrorist groups strongly suggests that their members may not be politically motivated. And I'm even more convinced of this when I look at terrorist members themselves. And I'll briefly mention five puzzling behaviors at the individual level. The first is that terrorists often join multiple terrorist groups with incompatible political platforms. Today's terrorists in Pakistan, for example, regularly defect to other terrorist groups with totally different platforms. Alternatively, Pakistani terrorists maintain simultaneous memberships in groups with contradictory platforms. Within al-Qaeda, these types of politically bizarre defections and cross-memberships are actually the norm. Second, when asked to describe their political goals, many terrorist foot soldiers and even their leaders confess that they have no clue um, and that, frankly, they're not even really interested in talking about politics. Um, and this is, this is, again, we see this a lot among al-Qaeda. The third puzzle that we see at the individual level is that people who join terrorist groups frequently are not politically oppressed in any, in any visible way. We know that a very small percentage of today's terrorists in Iraq, maybe 10%, actually come from that country. And that many al-Qaeda terrorists today are being radicalized in Europe, where their democratic governments were essentially just leaving them alone. You might expect terrorists to pop up in the most oppressive societies, but we know, again, that these are precisely the societies where terrorists are the least likely to pop up. The fourth puzzle is that, most is that most people who join terrorist groups today have no prior involvement in the group's political agenda. I'm not persuaded that somebody can become a committed jihadist from reading a blog uh, or converting just a couple weeks before. Finally, terrorists often don't seem to care so much which country they attack or why. After the Mujahideen defeated the Soviets in Afghanistan, for example, you might have expected the militants to lay down their arms and go home. Instead, they sat around until they came up with a new political target, 
their former allies, the United States. This is the real story of how al-Qaeda was formed, from former Mujahideen leaders who weren't sure whom to terrorize. Al-Qaeda terrorists today don't actually seem that different. We know that many of the 9-11 hijackers, for example, actually planned to, to go to Chechnya and attack the, Rus- the Russians. But when the paperwork was too tricky for them to gain access into Chechnya, they decided to attack the World Trade Center instead. Of the thousands of people who were killed on 9-11, not a single one was Russian. In fact, al-Qaeda's own military leader has admitted that his group's target selection seems to him like, quote, random chaos. In sum, there's a lot of evidence at both the group and individual level that the conventional wisdom is seriously flawed, particularly the groups that we care most about, namely al-Qaeda and its affiliates. So why then do people use terrorism if not for the political return? Psychological tests have found that terrorists are not crazy or irrational. This implies that people may become terrorists for rational, you know, non-political reasons. There's growing evidence that people turn to terrorism for the social solidarity. One, demographic data suggests that terrorist groups appeal disproportionately to the socially alienated. And this seems especially true for al-Qaeda. We know that terrorists almost never, never work alone. Greater than 90% of all terrorists operate with at least one other person. Terrorist groups are frequent repositories for people who are dislocated from their native homeland. Mark Sageman and others have found that upwards of 80% of al-Qaeda members in their samples were unassimilated first- or second-generation immigrants in non-Muslim countries. Furthermore, European Muslims are unassimilated in their host countries and represent a core al-Qaeda constituency, whereas Muslims in the United States are comparatively assimilated and detached from the al-Qaeda network. Variation on the independent variable of social isolation can therefore explain variation on the dependent variable for joining al-Qaeda. Second, studies on a wide variety of terrorist groups have found that the key scope condition for joining was having a friend or relative in the terrorist group. West Point researchers, for example, have recently shown that just knowing an al-Qaeda member is a much better predictor than believing in the jihad for joining al-Qaeda. Third, terrorists from many groups admit that they join the armed struggle to maintain or develop social relations with other terrorist members. These aren't the statements of a small number of terrorists. In a survey of 1,000 Turkish terrorists, for example, they were 10 times more likely to say that they joined the terrorist group for social reasons than for political ones. Terrorist groups focus their recruitment on the socially isolated, not on people with a demonstrable commitment to the given political cause. Finally, terrorist groups may be particularly attractive outlets for those seeking solidarity. Terrorist groups are far more tight-knit than other voluntary associations because of the dangers and costs of participation. This may explain why terrorist attacks tend to generate new recruits and boost membership morale, even though the terrorist attacks will almost definitely fail to achieve the terrorist group's given political goals. If I'm right that most people become terrorists for the social solidarity and not the political return, then our counterterrorism strategy needs major adjustment. 
we shouldn't be under any illusions that terrorism will end by simply withholding political concessions or granting political concessions or providing peaceful outlets for political change. Iraq-based terrorist groups will continue to thrive even if we stay in the country, leave the country, or continue promoting national elections there. What the terrorist political rationale will be is anyone's guess, but that many of the terrorist groups will remain intact seems highly probable to me. Law enforcement should pay uh, greater attention to the socially marginalized than to the politically downtrodden. We have to pay extra attention to unassimilated diaspora communities in Western countries, even those which live comfortably and enjoy our political freedoms. We also have to pay particular attention to prison populations, including inmates without any prior political tendencies. We have to reduce terrorism's social utility by driving a wedge between terrorist organization members. This means that we need to develop and plant more spies. We have to reduce the demand for at-risk populations to turn to terrorism in the first place. Democracies have to improve their records of cracking down on bigotry, supporting hate crime legislation, and encouraging moderate places of worship. In authoritarian countries, civil society has to take root so there are better opportunities for the socially marginalized to bond in peaceful, voluntary associations. Finally, counterterrorism operations have to minimize collateral damage, which creates dislocation, social isolation, and calls for revenge. These are the types of policies that I think uh, will help reduce the social benefits of using terrorism, which I believe are what its practitioners seem to value most. I'm very grateful uh, to all of the speakers. I'm enormously grateful um, as the uh, panel chair that they stuck to their allotted few minutes uh, so that I didn't have to pick up that, you know, three-minute sign uh, every couple of minutes. Um, We now have time until 12.15 for questions. and uh, I know many, I'm sure many of you would uh, like to ask them. Uh, I have to say that for myself, uh, I was struck by a number of blinding insights uh, that were um, uh, offered by several of the, of the uh, panelists. Um, by the way, Max, uh, I really think that um, if, it, in fact, you're right, that terrorist groups don't achieve their goals by targeting civilians I think one of your many contributions uh, should be to offer uh, your papers to as many terrorists as possible. Ah. Um, It's also interesting uh, that you said that many terrorists have no clue why they're doing what they're doing. Um, Maybe uh, you can uh, um, advise them to read the Internet or any of the other sources of propaganda you're in equal opportunity theoretical nihilist, I think. Um, enough of my comments. Uh, questions, please. Sir, if you could identify yourself and speak to the microphone. Hello, Steve Fritzinger from Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, Mr. Abrams talked about how terrorists are less likely to 
um, achieve their political goals. But if I remember Dr. Pape's book properly, suicide terrorists are, are significantly more likely mm -hmm. to achieve their goals. So I wonder if you could talk about what the differences are and um, what would be driving that. The purpose of this is to incite an argument between the two people on my left. <laughs> Good job. Uh, do you want to address that next? I, I'd love to. Um, yeah, I mean, we, one of the big differences is that we define terrorism very differently. For me, the, the key distinction uh, between terrorism and guerrilla warfare or terrorist campaigns and guerrilla campaigns is that terrorist campaigns tend to focus on civilians or civilian targets, whereas guerrilla campaigns, by definition, um, tend to be against military targets. And, and I mean, what, where, we, where we seem to agree is that uh, guerrilla campaigns frequently succeed uh, in ending foreign occupations. Um, but that's not to say um, that an attack like 9-11, which clearly is against a civilian target, uh, are politically effective. Um, so I think that when you disaggregate terrorists from guerrilla campaigns, uh, you see uh, variable success rates. Bob? Uh, well, if you look at my book, you'll see that uh, from 1980 to 2003, there were 13 suicide terrorist campaigns. About half of those produced uh, um, uh, political success. One of the most successful was uh, the Marine, the suicide truck bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut in October uh, 1983, which caused us to take all our combat forces out. Uh, of Lebanon. Anybody who doubts that can just read Ronald Reagan's own memoirs. He has a whole chapter in the book laying out his thinking in detail for withdrawing those forces. And there are many other uh, cases uh, uh, um, in cases of Al-Qaeda, of course. <clears throat> what Al-Qaeda's attacks have been dedicated towards since 9-11 mostly has not been um, coercing the United States so much as coercing America's allies out of Iraq. And if you look at their success in getting America's allies out of Iraq, it's actually been quite uh, stunning. The only other point to make in, is that I definitely appreciate Max's work, um, and I uh, definitely agree that he's looking at all terrorism, and I'm looking just at suicide terrorism. Um, the only other point I'd, I'd add is that I think it's terribly important to control for the size of terrorist groups. Because, you see, if you look at all terrorism, this would be like looking, again, at all cancer. There's a lot of forms of cancer, many of which are not lethal. <laughs> okay. Um, there are just a ton of forms of cancer. So if you were to say, you know, you want to kind of look at the, you know, sort of analysis of all cancer, you'd discover that it's actually quite difficult. In case of terrorist groups, there are many, butter, I mean, if you look at the several hundred terrorist groups that have been around the world since World War II, most of them, like 80-some percent of them, I know because I have a graduate student doing this research, um, are small, <laughs> very small. They're like Bader meinhof groups, you know, like a few dozen here or there. Well, it'd be very unlikely uh, that you're going to see political success by a few dozen, but that's not what Hamas is, that's not what Hezbollah is, that's not what Sri Tamil Tigers. So I would think that if you're really going to try to get at this, it would be very important to control for size. Mia? I just wanted to add in something to um, undergird Max's point that 
when you're looking at success, it depends on what you're defining as success. The example that Bob gives about Lebanon is interesting if it had actually been Hezbollah that had perpetrated the attack. But I think the evidence has come forward that it was actually the Iranian government using agents. And in fact, to this day, we still don't, I mean, according to Bob Baer, we still don't still don't actually know. But we have a very strong suspicion that it was Iran. So, I mean, the fact remains is that if you're going to look at success, short-term, long-term, yes, um, you've got a success, let's say, where the Israelis leave the West Bank and Gaza, but they always can go back, and sometimes they do. We have a success, maybe temporarily, where the Sri Lankan military leaves the north and the east of Sri Lanka, temporarily in in the north, giving... LTT free reign. Well, a few weeks ago, they went back and they're now in Kilinochi in the headquarters. So the idea of success is really kind of fuzzy because going back to what Max was saying, their ultimate goal is much larger than getting rid of troops. Their ultimate goal sometimes might be the first step is getting rid of the troops, but also there are political goals that, you know, for, for the Hezbollah, one was to get rid of the French and the Israelis and the Americans, but the other one was to create a globalized Islamic state. In the end, you know, neither of those were completely successful because, again, the Israelis sort of lingered. So I think we just have to be careful when we're looking at success by being too uh, preemptive to say, you know, mission accomplished. There's a question up there, please. Could you identify yourself? Yeah, Ariel Roth, Johns Hopkins University. Um, I have a question for Dr. Pape, though. It's a methods question. I'm not sure about its significance. It's an observation. It's about the dog that didn't bark. All the antecedent conditions that you think are present were present at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and yet, by your, what you just told us, there were no attacks against the Soviets. Yep. Uh, any theory as to why not, given that all those conditions applied? Um, uh, before we get to Afghanistan, uh, you're quite right that there are many occupations that did not lead to suicide terrorism. And if you ever get a chance to look at my book, you'll see I devoted 100 pages to answering that question. So not just a small amount. I do a large end statistical analysis of all the um, – um, uh, the number one thing, if you notice, one of the key variables here is democracies have to be doing the occupying because it's against democracies to try to get that political leverage for democracies to change their behavior. And of course, the Soviet Union at that time is not a democracy. But that's kind of an easy out, so to speak, because there are many, many other. um, And one of the key enabling factors or secondary conditions, by the way, is when there's a foreign occupation plus a religious difference between the occupier and the occupied community. And it's not because some religions love to do it and others don't, because this is also true in the case of Sri Lanka, where it's purely a secular campaign. It's because when you have a foreign occupation married to a religious difference, that allows the terrorist leaders to paint that occupation, the occupier, as driven by a religious agenda. And this is why Osama goes to great lengths to paint us as the crusader with a Christian agenda to convert Muslims, damage Islam, or help uh, uh, Israel so that Christians and Jews, this is uh, Osama's talk, uh, Christians and Jews can jointly extend their control over Jerusalem. So there are additional secondary factors that explain some and others. I just can't, uh, can only touch the top of those waves here. Thank you. Back there, please. I was uh, struck, Mr. Abrams, by the... uh, If you could please identify, sir. I'm Ed Desisure, the University of Maryland. Thank you. uh, 
by the analogy between what you described, Mr. Abrams, and organized crime sociologically. Is that a correct um, characterization? Yeah, a lot of people have read that um, that argument in that way, and I, I think that it is similar. I mean, I think that we drastically overestimate the extent to which um, terrorists are these, you know, brilliant, you know, people. Like, and you really see it when you compare it to other forms of crime. You know, like we we tend to lionize these terrorists. You know, the the terrorist mastermind or al-Qaeda, its sophistication, the sophistication of its attacks makes it al-Qaeda because they all, you know, detonated a bomb at the same time. Um, and, and, you know, you, you compare that to other types of crimes. You know, if a, if a, a high school kid, you know, some, some reject basically, you know, goes behind his school and burns a dumpster and writes graffiti on the wall, you know, we don't, we don't lionize them in the same way. I'm not sure why there's this huge disconnect in interpretation in terms of crediting the terrorists with all sorts of uh, intellect. I, 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 I view it as similarly fueled by social reasons. Please. Uh, I have a little disagreement with, with Dr. If you could identify yourself, please. Uh, do you hear me now? Yes, if you could identify oh, yourself. My name is Abdali from Afghanistan. I have a little disagreement with Dr. Papp, uh, who generalized uh, anti-American anti sentiment in Afghanistan. Uh, please don't forget that 75% of Afghans are still supporting the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. So if that is the case, then 95% of Afghans would not commit suicide against the, the U.S. Second, you labeled uh, a, a big group of Afghans, Pashtun, you said that they are anti-Americans. It's a huge population. Over 40% of, only 40 billion, a million Pashtuns are living in that region. It's a mistake in Iraq and also a mistake in Afghanistan. You said in, in Iraq, Sunnis are against, and in Afghanistan, Pashtuns. The same Pashtuns joined the U.S.-led war against her, and they defeated the Taliban, uh, the radicals, who were politically motivated in that region. So it would be advisable. I think it's, it also reminded me of uh, British colleague. Um, uh, could you confine yourself now to British, the ending of your and question? He said, and he said in, in, in Ireland, the British suspected the Irish generally, and that caused them the loss and the defeat. The same thing would happen in Afghanistan and elsewhere. If you label a big group, millions of people, the same Pashtuns are not supporting Afghanistan, the government. President Karzai himself is a, is, a, is a president and he's a Pashtun. He's supporting uh, the U.S. So uh, it would be advisable to ask international help for, to free the Pashtuns from this nasty politics in the region would be used as instrumental policy. Thank you very much. Uh, Bob, you've been yeah. uh, accused of advising oh, too much. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, perhaps be a little bit clear. I'm not claiming for a moment that 26 million people in Afghanistan are all anti-American uh, by any stretch. Um, uh, what I am claiming, however, is that the more America's military presence and Western military presence have sat on the Pashtuns, the more that has pushed some Pashtuns to support, yes, some Pashtuns, 
costume, so the word some I'm inserting, okay, to support uh, Taliban operations, which is actually producing quite a lot of anti-American inspired suicide terrorism in the region. By the way, I fully um, uh, believe that one of the key strategies we should be pursuing is, let's call it a Sons of, F, uh, Sons of Kandahar strategy. You know, we had the Sons of Iraq, you know, and I think that was the most important thing that helped calm violence in Iraq, not any change in troop levels. Um, but what I think here would be very, very helpful would be a similar kind of Sons of Kandahar. And by the way, I'm extremely encouraged that General Petraeus seems to be very interested in this because it's a little bit like Nixon going to China. We need somebody who can actually take the political heat for cutting a deal with groups that have worked with the Taliban. Um, and Petraeus seems to be our Nixon in this particular case. And I just hope it turns out better than it did for him. <laughs> Thank you. There is a question back there. Jane Hogan from Virginia. You've mentioned military. Can, can you speak a bit into the mic, please? You've, you've mentioned military motivation and political motivation, but nobody has mentioned religious motivation for Islamic jihad and homicide bombers and the uh, followings of the Quran. Would somebody address that? Um, Mia, please. Um, what's interesting is that a lot of the suicide bombing isn't just directed against the foreigner or against the American or the British troop levels. And in true, it's true that uh, 2008 was the deadliest year in Afghanistan, and we are seeing these shifts. But a lot of the attacks are against other Muslims. And so we can't ignore the fact that in Iraq, in places like Pakistan, and to a lesser extent even in Afghanistan, the attacks are not just directed against the foreign Christian crusader or however you want to use that umbrella term, but also against other Muslims of different stripes. And what they're doing is they're pulling out in the religion, which is completely incorrect because Islam, the tenets of Islam, is antithetical to killing civilians, it's antithetical to killing other Muslims, and it's antithetical to suicide, which is a sin, like it is in every one of the monotheistic faiths. But they are pulling out of the Quran in a very selective way ways of finding justification and incentivizing people to kill either other Muslims if they're Shia or if they are of a particular strain that they consider them to be heretical sects and they don't, they don't view them as being Muslims on the same level. And they also use the religion, as you rightly pointed out, to justify in the most interesting way of theological acrobatics, to be able to pull out bits and pieces. And I want to go to something that Max said during his presentation that I thought was very interesting. But it's about, you know, we look at the issue of madrasas, whether or not the madrasa is a hotbed or a hot seat of, you know, simmering hatred against the West. Whether or not that might be the case, very few people who are graduates of madrasas are then used as suicide bombers. And this might be for a variety of reasons. First of all, it might be because the graduate of the madrasa is less capable as a suicide bomber. The university grad may speak English, so a Saudi who speaks English can gain access to a U.S. carrier. A Palestinian who's university educated, probably speaks Hebrew, can gain access to that Eged bus. So the fact is, you don't necessarily have madrasawis becoming the suicide bombers. But it's also significant that I want to say something as, a, you know, as someone with a degree in Islamic studies. If you know the Quran and the Hadith, 
You could not convince somebody who really knew the religion, yes, Muhammad supported that. Because if you said in the Quran, Surah Baqarah, and you start creating all of these you know, um, manipulations of the text to justify violence, the person who was well-versed in Islam would say, wait a second, however, the Prophet always preferred peace. And they could bring up a lot of equal number of citations to corroborate that. I think what you have, and this comes from Again, you know, Mark, Mark is the star of this panel in many ways. From Mark's book, that something like over 70% of the Al-Qaeda members that he, you know, detailed in his seminal book on the subject, Understanding the Terror Network, were actually secularly educated and overwhelmingly engineers. Because, again, the person who doesn't have the religious education, you can convince them, oh, yeah, that's what the religion says. And I would say, I'll give you a, a very, very quick analogy. You know, if I was in a room of very orthodox Jews and I justified what Baruch Goldstein had said or done and all of the manipulations to justify that, you would have a lot of people who would disagree. If I, I'm in a room of very religious Christians and I look at, you know, attacking abortion clinics and killing OBGYNs and say, yeah, you know, Jesus would have supported that, a really devout Christian would go to the text and say, you know, I don't recall that ever being in the Testament. I recall turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor, but kill the doctor was never there. So I think it's important for us to understand that, you know, in terms of motivation, these are manipulations of the text to try to create the justification but in fact, you know, these people are not religious, not religious in the true sense. Yes, sir. Shalwadzib Sashvili from uh, Georgia. Um, from Georgia. Georgia. Country Georgia. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. We have the University of Georgia here. It's always good to know. <laughs> Um, coming back to the questions, uh, how people and why people becoming terrorists, uh, could you a little bit elaborate on the state-sponsored terrorism? Because uh, you cannot deal with terrorism without finishing the problem of uh, states who are sponsoring the terrorism. Thank you. you know, we've had questions um, and themes that each of which could uh, constitute the core of a two-day conference here. So this is quite extraordinary. Uh, does anybody want to address the issue of state-sponsored terrorism? This would be good for James. James. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, as, you, as I kind of ran through that whole laundry list of um, what the research calls root causes, state sponsorship is one of the many that come up in the precipitant conditions um, that need to be addressed. It could be addressed from the avenue of being a, a facilitator, enabler of activity, but it could also be an ideological motivator and sponsor. And so there's, there's all kinds of different avenues to look at that. I think, I mean, if you're really interested, Dan Byman has a fantastic book on the subject of state sponsorship. And so what you can see is that, you know, the state sponsor either financially, they throw money at it, or they create safe havens, or it's a way in which states can interfere in the domestic politics of a neighboring country, so Pakistan, India. But what you have then is we we've very often we've made these distinctions between state terrorism, non, you know, non-state actor terrorism, and then also state-sponsored terrorism. And so you've got all these different categories and a subset of literature in each of them. Okay, can I just say a little word? Please. 
before uh, 9-11, it was probably a conventional wisdom that state sponsorship of terrorism was almost a sine qua non to get terrorism. Um, and that fed into the idea that once we toppled the Taliban, we would then roll up al-Qaeda, because many people had in their heads from the 90s the idea, oh, it must be the Taliban supporting al-Qaeda. In fact, what we've discovered, um, with the more we know about this, it's actually al-Qaeda that supported the Taliban, not the other way around, which is why when we toppled the Taliban, we didn't roll up al-Qaeda. So it's terribly important to um, pay attention to the actual empirics here because, it's yes, it's true, states can give money, and yes, it's true, states can give uh, technology, but the whole question of is it a necessary, that a sine qua non in many cases, the facts are not so clear in most of those famous cases. Sir. I'd like to add on to that. If you could identify yourself. Oh, sorry, Milton Leitenberg, University of Maryland. Um, the role of the Indian government was instrumental in making the LTT. Israel uh, made, essentially, uh, Hamas. And, and kept it going for years. Uh, one could go back to the PKK. Well, the, the Iranian-Iraqi uh, situation pre-1975 with Israel and the U.S. supporting people on each side. This is something that was missing from the panels. Um, I just want to ask a question to Bob Pape. Um, I, I mentioned that my wife works as a consultant for the British government. I must say... She and her colleagues are just as afraid of the Kandahar, uh, the, the transfer of, their, of Petraeus's model to Kandahar, because they see it as leading to the same thing as the people the war, that we supported the warlords in the first two or three years, and that this has, in fact, a widely detrimental effect in Afghanistan. Mia said one thing which I'd like to ask you about, which is the killing of Muslims. Mm -hmm. In your data set, there are these two little reports that just came out about two months ago from a group in Afghanistan, which show the different proportion of people killed by the suicide bombers in Afghanistan. Is there some way you can put that into your data, and to what degree might that change things? Um, it's certainly the case that when uh, suicide terrorist groups kill Muslims, um, they have actually lost some legitimacy. Uh, you see this, actually, in a lot of the rhetoric of the suicide terrorist groups themselves, because as that phenomenon, as, as we basically have tried to get more local allies, that is to get the moderate Muslims to help us run the countries, <laughs> and they have been killing those um, allies of ours, um, others uh, in the country aren't so sure. You know, they don't really know, and they're actually uh, it is causing uh, a lot of terrorist groups to lose at least a little bit of uh, legitimacy. But what you're seeing is that the rise of their own information campaigns to explain it. Uh, for instance, in the, uh, re the May 12th, re uh, 2003 Riyadh bombing uh, by al-Qaeda, uh, which killed disproportionately Muslims, not Westerners, although those were the targets, um, al-Qaeda uh, published a 30-page single-space explanation <laughs> for why they did it, and it looks like they took it r a script right from our Kosovo campaign. <laughs> in other words, if you look at how we explained how we, our air power were killing civilians in Kosovo and how the Israelis uh, explain how, why they have to kill civilians uh, when they go into the West Bank and Gaza, it looks like what's happening is they're just taking the information uh, propaganda you know, efforts and just applying the very same tools that, our, that we do in the West. So... Um 
There is a question from the first floor conference room. That question uh, is all that stands between us and lunch. Um, so, uh, the question is, is understanding root causes or the study of them an effective path to counterterrorism? And there is a footnote here, a simple yes or no from each panel member. <laughs> so, um, allow me to start with Mia. Fortunately, I was prepared for that question. I, I always like when someone asks me a question I can answer. Um, so I don't know if they're going to like it. I have. We're left with the question, is the search for root causes practical, useful? And I said, yes and no, because terrorism is rooted in legitimate grievances or grievances that have the supportive voice of a community. Significantly, state provocation along the lines of what we've discussed can definitely act as a catalyst for terrorism, but also no, because there's no simple cause and effect relationship between root causes and terrorism. Root causes assumes that the terrorists are passive actors. Terrorism is based on sometimes imagined grievances that don't really exist, and those often tend to change. And I think it's important for us to understand at the end of the day, what I would say is there's probably no military solution for terrorism, but there is probably no magic bullet that we're going to find the one root cause that will be the end of terrorism. So I guess that was both a yes and a no. Sorry. James? I agree. <laughs> That's terrific. Bob? Indispensable. Yeah, reminds I, me of you know from the Princess Bride, inconceivable. Inconceivable. I think Next. that uh, I think that if there is a match between our understanding of you know what motivates terrorists and our response, then we're drastically more likely to get it right and to reduce terrorism. But I don't think that there that that's a requirement. If you take the the Palestinians, for example. They are, you know, committed to the right of return. Um, and yet, in a poll by uh, Shikaki, um, they were asked, if you were provided $500,000 each, would you abandon the right of return? And most Palestinians say yes. Um, we'll be passing a poll. Is anyone, uh, <laughs> anyone here uh, old enough to remember West Side Story or has seen the reruns of it? I remember that Officer Kropke song uh, where the gang member says, um, uh, uh, describes how he talks to the social worker and tells the social worker what he or she wants to know. I'm depraved on account of I'm, I was deprived. Uh, that was the basis uh, for the idea that poverty is the root cause of terrorism. We've come a very long way uh, so that uh, most of us probably are left a little confused but also quite enriched by all of the research that has been done uh, and much of which you've uh, gotten a glimpse of uh, a little bit of here in this panel. And I'm very grateful to the panelists and to Cato for pulling all of this together. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Walter. A quick announcement that we will uh, begin lunch. Uh, please be patient. There are only about uh, 250 of you that all want to eat at the same time. And a reminder that we will uh, be welcoming Steve Cole, whose address will start promptly at 1.15. So if you could be in your seats well before 1.15, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you all very much. And thanks to our panelists and to Walter for chairing this fine panel.